Romans chapter 2. And we're going to continue on in our road through Romans that we began a couple of weeks ago, and we will continue to go um, through over the next few weeks, a couple months here. And here's what we're going to do today. We're going to jump between chapters 2 and 3. We're not going to read all of 2 and all of 3. We are going to read a portion of 2 and then turn over into chapter 3 and read a portion of it. And then we're going to piece everything together to understand what Paul is writing, which is something that you and I kind of look for today. And if we're not careful, find ourselves living in. And if you remember last week, we we finished up chapter 1 where Paul really got kind of dark and, and explained to us what mankind's problem was all of these years that mankind has been walking the earth ever since the event in the Garden of Eden. And the problem is us. The, I mean, the, your, some of your problems are self-inflicted. If we were to be honest, there's a lot of things that we struggle with that we might fight on a daily basis that... Not all of them, and I'm not saying that everything that you've done is, has led up to this, and now you're suffering because you did all these bad things, though you may be. And there may be times where we can cause self-inflicting wounds, and the consequences of our previous sin catch up to us, and we may be disciplined in a season. But all in all, the, the reality is, is that sin has always been the driving force of evil. And then whenever you, know, whenever you think about mankind... You look at the garden, and then you look at the law. The law is discussed a lot in this book of, or the letter to the Romans, and a lot in chapters 2 and 3 that we're going to discuss here. But if you look at people as a whole, any time you give people something good, over time we have a really good tendency to ruin it. We have a really good tendency of ruining it. You know, we get a new house over time, not even because of our own, you know, intentional acts, but over time we, we ruin it. You give us a perfect garden and holy communion with a holy God where we just talk and converse and walk around with, and over a little bit of time we ruined it. And then we get this perfect law given by God, and over time we, we have 700 laws and all of these other restrictions and all of these ways of living and, and almost ruin it. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go to chapter 2. We're going to begin 1 through 14 is where I think we're going to go, maybe 13. And then we're going to go over to chapter 2. We're going to kind of review the end of chapter 1 as we look into this so that we can understand exactly what Paul's saying. So let's just go to, let's get to work. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Let me just stop real quick. Um, As you read the beginning of chapter 2, the first 8, 10 verses or so, you're going to see a lot of similarities in the writing of Paul here as Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus gave the seven woes to the Pharisees. When he called them, oh, you hypocrites, oh, you hypocrites, oh, you hypocrites. So there's going to be a lot of similarity here in this particular writing, and we'll explain it here in just a minute. We know that the judgment of God right, rightly falls on those who practice such things. So he's talking about a, a judgment from God and the wrath of God being rightful, rightfully placed on people who practice sin and who live in evil. 
And he goes on to say, Do you suppose, O man, you who judges those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume the riches of of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. That word impenitent, impenitent or impenitent, that word there literally means that you do not view your wrongdoing as anything important. You have no care for your wrongdoing. So you just continue to live in sin and have no care for it. And you just casually look at it as normal life. He said, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. If you remember from last week, one of the big things that I had you circle or, or keep in mind was the word truth. Those who suppress the truth or those who re, or eliminated the truth or maybe replaced the truth of God with evil or with a lie. And here we see Paul says, but those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also be, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. All right, now let's skip over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul poses a question, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness or their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Now we get into a few more questions and we're going to end here in just a few more verses. Verse 9, Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. 
the venom of asps is under their their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now let me just pose a question to you. Who here might be saying after hearing that or reading that, what in the what? (laughs) What's he saying? What are we getting to? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, how it ends, as the Judeo-Christian people of Paul's day would have heard these words or may have read these words written, as they may have heard them spoken by a teacher or a leader, they they would have been clapping. They would have been clapping because the Judeo people, the Jewish people that have now chosen to follow Christ, would be looking at all of the Gentiles there in Rome and saying, we told you so. As if we told you all of these years why you all were all jacked up. We, this is why us and the Samaritans didn't get along. This is why we were our own special people. And what we see here is that the Jews and Judeo-Christians in this day seem to have certain prejudices towards Gentile people. Why? Because the Gentiles didn't have the law. Therefore, they had a very hard time with understanding God's mercy and grace being given to all people, not just the Jews. So this is why Paul says, those who perish without the law, meaning the law was not originally intended for the Gentile people, but for his chosen people of the Jewish heritage, that they will perish without the law. Those who were who are sinning and behaving wrong under the law, they will be held to the law's standard. So what Paul is doing is what we discussed very first week of this entire series. He is trying to unite a church that is made up of two different people. And these two different people are Jewish descent, who, as they were persecuted from their home, they made themselves, they made their way to Rome, and they planted a church, and they preached the gospel. And when a new governor came to power, and the Jews were sent back home, or they were told to leave this particular area of Rome, we see Gentiles now taking over the church and operating the church. And whenever the Jews are allowed to come back years later, we get a a mesh of people that are doing church. And just like we see here, a collaboration of people, a collaboration of backgrounds, a collaboration of views, a collaboration of opinions, all coming together and doing God's work. So what we see in this particular text is first Paul comes right out of the gate swinging about evil and how broken sinful people we really are and how we have for years and years and years traded uh, you know, other things for the Lord. We have pursued money or we have pursued power or we have pursued idolatry or we have pursued adultery or we have pursued all forms of immorality, and these immoralities are birthed from our own idolatry, worshiping other things than the Lord. And then he goes right to the people, right to the people. He comes out swinging to those who, who cast judgment upon others. Paul is initially talking in this particular 
passage of this letter, this particular chunk of this letter, to the Jewish people who continue to look look upon the Gentiles as still yet not there, not quite worthy of God's mercy and His grace, not quite you know, up to their standard of living because they have the law and they have a mark. And it made me think, if we were to be honest, we as people are always looking for some kind of marking measure to tell us just how good we're doing. Just how good we're doing. When it comes to our bank, bank account, if, as long as it's not red, we may be doing well. As long as it's still black, it's, you know, it's still above the red, then, then we may see, okay, because it is, you know, we have a marker there. If it goes below zero, then of course we are not doing as well. When it comes to driving, there are lines on the highway that gives me a boundary. It gives me marks to drive within. And as long as I drive within these two marks and they drive within their two marks, uh, then I'm going to do okay. As long as I drive the speed limit that is marked for me to obey, then I'm going to do okay. I'm not going to get a ticket. Or I'm not going to, you know, get hit as long as they're here and I'm driving the speed limit and, and no one's on their cell phones and, you know, no one's doing their makeup or, or dipping their Chick-fil-A sauce or whatever they're doing, you know, when we drive or typing on their computers or, or, you know, emailing homework to their professors, whatever they're doing while they're driving because we've all been there. We all do th- different things. And, um, you know, this is why we have police in here that they're going to follow you home and they're going to, they're going to get you, get you all worked up and get you ready. Um, but there, we always have markers. We have markers. We have markers. You know, as long as I eat these things and I, you know, follow these, these policies or these practices, these, I always have something to measure myself against to see just how good I'm doing. And this is the same as it comes to religion. We see a group of people all throughout history, and Jesus opposed them, not in a way of hatefulness or, or I can't stand you, but at the same time, he could not stand how marked they were and how marked they wanted everyone else to obey these sets of rules and do it this particular way. And Jesus came not to abolish the law, not to say, no, 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 get away with, do away with it. Let's just have a new way of living. He came to fulfill it because the law, as Paul writes at the end of chapter, well, verse 20 of chapter three, he said, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So through the law, through the Old Testament law, we have the knowledge of sin. We have markers telling us what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And if we're not careful, what I hope we we can understand is if you aren't careful, if I'm not careful, we will look at other people around us today in the same way. Because I see what I do, and I see what I don't do, and I see what you do, and then again, I see what you don't do. So if we aren't careful, we might find ourselves in the same position as the Judeo people and we look at other people with certain prejudices as if they aren't good enough because they quite haven't, they haven't quite made it to where I am. And it gets us into a very, very dangerous trap of comparison and judging. And this is why Paul says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. So if you and I are casting judgment towards other people because I live this particular way, because I was raised this way or I was taught this way, and these people are living this way, then what happens is we find ourselves in a very dangerous trap. So the question that we have to answer is, how do we judge people rightly? 
Did you know that if you are a Christian and you know another Christian living in adultery, you can confront said person? You don't, you know, punch him in the face. You don't, you don't kick him in the head with a Bible. You, I mean, you don't, you don't torture them or physically assault them and confront them, but you confront them in their sin because if we are, if we truly love someone, we will give them the honest truth whether it hurts or not. But what happens is we must be very careful and not to hold non-Christian people to Christian standards, therefore hating the world that we were cast into to help save. So we live in a world of sinful people. We live in a world filled with Christians and non-Christians. Therefore, we must be very wise in how we cast judgment or how we hold people accountable. And whenever it comes to you and I, let's just... Let's just break the ice here. Let me just ask you if you've ever judged anyone. Just raise your hand. <laughs> Today. Well, I can't believe they would wear that. I can't believe they would wear that. <laughs> I can't believe they would leave the house looking like that. I can't, I can't believe he said, I can't believe she, I can't believe they are still doing this. See, having opinions, You know, it kind of reminds me of James. When James says that sin isn't just one act and then we're finding ourselves in adultery. Adultery isn't just something that happens out of nowhere. It's because a desire is first fed into and a desire becomes something that you crave. And then that craving births sin whenever you act upon said desire, said sin. And the same is true with people around us. If we aren't careful... We will become so hateful and judgmental of others because they aren't like me. So even though sin is something that is first birthed by a desire and then that desire is acted upon, we have to understand that judgment towards other people is the same way. Because what is very dangerous is that when you and I start to find ourselves living in the right way, we immediately see all the people that aren't. And then we immediately are able to pinpoint what other people are struggling with. And I'll be honest with you, and I will just, I will just confess that if there are things that I'm not struggling with and you're living with, it's very easy for me to mention them. But God forbid you mention the things that I'm struggling with. And that's the same for you. It's very easy to look at your neighbor and say, well, I can't believe he's still doing this or she's still doing that, though you may not struggle with it. And they would look at you and say, well, I can't believe you're doing this. This is why Paul says, we know that judgment of God falls rightfully on those who practice such things. And you who judge those who practice such things, yet you do harm, you do them yourself. So you may not do the exact act that someone else may be doing. So here's what I want us to to really get to, what Paul is really wanting to do here. Paul is wanting to unite a group of people that one group of people were held under the law, the other group of people were not held under the law, and he's wanting to inform them that there is now a new mark. There is now a new mark to your righteous living. What used to be the law has now, we now, and he's wanting them to know we now live in a new age and a new covenant upon whom? Christ. 
So if you want to live rightfully in the Old Testament day, you would, you would follow all of these laws and you would follow all of these policies and you would practice such things and then you would be considered as someone who is good or someone who is right. But now Paul is wanting to remind them and inform them and we'll get further into it in the rest of chapter 3 that there is now a new way of doing it. And that way is Jesus. That your marker for holiness, your mark for righteousness is Christ. If you want to be right, you better live like Christ. If you want to be holy, you better live like Christ. And all of the people around you today, all the people in this place are now held to that standard. Now, I know we're never going to meet that standard and we are going to fall short. And there is where grace comes in. But for you and I, in 2022, we are not held under the Old Testament law as our way of doing things, though there are things that we still abide by, things that we still practice, but our marker is now Jesus. And Jesus was perfect. You and I should, if we want to be spiritually mature, strive to live perfectly. We should strive each and every day to live perfectly. Now I get it. You're going to mess up. You're going to fail before you even finish your cup of coffee. I get it. You're going to fail because your wife didn't have the coffee made. I get it. You're going to fail because your way to work was horrible or your kids didn't obey or they were hard to get up. There's going to be times where immediately you begin your day and you fall short and you you end your day and you fall short. But our daily pursuit should be Christ and our daily pursuit in Christ should be perfection. That is how we should now live. Because our marker for righteousness is Jesus. So we live in a day in which comparison runs the world. Because I compare my life to your life because of what I see, or maybe because of what you post. And here's what I wanted, I just want to tell you a little bit about comparison. Comparison will choke every bit of joy out of your life. When you judge yourself based off what other people have and you don't, or you judge others based off what you have and and what they don't, I'm telling you, your joy will be choked out. It will steal your joy. Passing judgment or comparison of other people, comparing yourself to others will literally rob you. Because here's what happens. If you aren't careful... You may have more than some people or you may be doing better than some people. And what you will imagine yourself as, as greater than, and you will exalt yourself to a standard or a platform that you aren't actually worthy of. Or if you are someone that has less than and you are always looking at other people who have more than or who are better than, then what you will always do is you will always feel inadequate and unworthy. And this is what I want us to know, that at the cross of Christ, every single one of us are finding ourselves on the same playing field of unworthy, inadequate, and not enough. Every single person, whether you lived under the Old Testament law or you were a barbarian Greek, is now coming together in Paul's day and age in Rome. And they are finding themselves all different types of people. Some people had religious backgrounds. Some people had rich backgrounds. Some people had very poor backgrounds. Some people had, you know, very uneasy backgrounds. And they're all coming together and they're being united in one body and not being 
com, com, you know, combined and united based off their political standards or their, or their economical status or their social status. They're all being united by one name, the name of Jesus. As you and I all come together, and let's, I mean, if we looked around this room, we are seeing different types of people here. There are richer people than others. There are smarter people than others. And there's prettier people than others. There are much wiser people than others. There are stronger people than others. There are more patient people than others. There are more compassionate people. So here's what I want us to know. As you and I grow in our faith, we are constantly reminded that our pursuit should be Christ. And that our mark, our standard of pursuit in our faith should never be to just be better than someone else. Our, our, our pursuit in our faith should never be just so I'm not the worst. Because as I mentioned before, comparison, judging yourself towards others or judging others because of who they are, who they aren't, will always leave you unsatisfied and they will always leave you feeling guilty. Because let's just face it, if you were to look around the room, there are people that drive more expensive cars than we do. There are people in this church that have bigger homes or smaller homes than we do. If you look around the world, there are smarter people than we are. And if we aren't careful, we will find ourselves constantly allowing judgment, comparison, and condemnation from allowing us from truly experiencing joy that God has blessed us with. So here's what I do know. That if I judge you because of who you are, then I boast in it of myself and I look down upon you. Or if I judge myself based off who I'm not in comparison to you, then I look down upon me and I'm always looking up at you and exalting you above who I am or who you really are. And if we aren't careful, when we live in pursuit of religion or when we live in pursuit of being like other people, then we will find ourselves constantly pursuing what they have We will constantly be envying what they may have. And then we find ourselves neglecting what God has given us. Because God has blessed you and me in different ways. But God has ultimately brought us all together by the same name. Jesus. So when Paul writes this letter, as he first addresses sin and sinfulness and evil, and those who practice evil will, will truly endure this, the, the wrath of God, and they will be rightfully justified as they endure this wrath forever and ever and ever. He then goes towards people that are judging others based off who they are. So here's what I want us to do as a church. Here's what I, my goal for you as a person, my goal for you as a family, is to set your sight upon Christ. If you want to truly be right, if you want to live in holiness, if you want to find yourself growing spiritually, set your sights upon Christ. Not upon other people and how much better than or worse than you are. And my next goal for you and for me 
is to constantly be reminded that if we were to strip all of our bank accounts away, if we were to take all of the vehicles away, you and I are all going to stand before the Lord one day. And just as Don said earlier, it doesn't matter how much money we may have. It doesn't matter how big our homes were, what we drove. It's all going to be our relationship with whom? Christ. So if we want to live right, there is now, as Paul is telling this church, there is a new way. We live in a new covenant age in Jesus. So to wrap all of this up, we look at a group of people in Rome who were prejudiced towards other people based off their background or maybe prejudiced towards the other people based off their background and who had issues and Paul is trying to unite them. And if we were to be honest, maybe maybe we've been there where we are you, and you can just raise your hand because I'll just raise my hand and say, sometimes it's hard to imagine how some people are truly saved and how we have a hard time understanding that those people truly have called upon the name of the Lord and how God would really love them. And what happens is because people aren't living like us, we cast our judgment or our prejudices towards them as if they are not enough or not worthy enough. And then what we do is we boast in how good we really are. And here's what I want us all to do. If I could just humble us all for a moment and tell us all that apart from Christ, we are all nothing. Then what we find ourselves is on the same exact level. Apart from Christ, I hate to tell you this because your mom and dad probably told you that you were, you know, you were special and you were going to change the world. And, and maybe you have, maybe you are. But I want you to know, spiritually, apart from Christ, you are nothing. Apart from Christ, I am nothing. But with Christ, I am everything. With Christ, you are everything. Not that you can do everything. Not that you're going to go do everything that he did or, or, or you know, you're going to change the world or save the world. But with Christ, I am made whole and I am made right in the sight of God. And my life pursuit should be in constant pursuit of perfection. And that perfection is defined by Christ. So the question that may, some people may have is how do I pursue Christ? How do I know how to live in all of these areas? How do I navigate every area of my life to pursue righteousness and holiness? And I want to tell you there is an entire book about it. We have to understand who Jesus was and what he taught in order to truly be like him. And as Paul ended chapter 3, verse 20. I closed my Bible. I thought I was done. He said, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge. So there is nothing that you and I can do in and of ourselves to boast about that will ever put us standing in right place of God. So I, I say all of this to wrap it all together with this. When you live your life, pursue Christ and Christ alone. And do not compare yourself to other people and do not judge other people because they are not you. Because as we all pursue Christ individually, we all move at different speeds and different people do different things, different ways than you do. So you and I, in and of ourselves, without Christ, are literally spiritually nothing. And with that being said, in and of ourselves, without Christ, we are no better than, no greater than anyone else. But through Christ, all of us are together and we are united. 
And then the righteousness of God is then lived out in us through Christ. As we pursue Christ, we live Christ, we share Christ, we praise Christ, we worship Christ, we preach Christ. Therefore, ultimately, over time, we find ourselves looking more and more like Christ. Let's pray.